break. I get so lonely. Everybody gets that. Living with somebody you love can be lonelier than living entirely alone. And the one you love doesn't love you. In Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, Brick, played by Paul Newman, wallows in despair and an unending well of alcohol. Once a star athlete, he is now entombed in an unfulfilling marriage with Maggie, played by Elizabeth Taylor, and stands in mourning for Skipper, an old friend he clearly harbors strong feelings for. The nature of those feelings remains largely unspoken, leaving audiences to ask, why the hell won't Paul Newman sleep with Elizabeth Taylor? The subtext, of course, is that Brick is a homosexual, and his affections for Skipper were never afforded an opportunity to manifest. But the movie, made in the golden sheen of 1950s Hollywood melodrama, could not afford to make these connections explicit. Tennessee Williams' Pulitzer Prize-winning work was not the only byproduct of this censorship. The quest to portray open and honest homosexual desire had long remained elusive, both on stage and screen. That is, until the boys in the band. Professor of Cinema Studies at City University of New York Graduate Center, David Gerstner. Boys in the Band in some ways becomes this um, maybe grand out moment um, for the, the representation of you know, a gay male figure. But with that said, um, you know, clearly we had the kind of uh, the repressed um, homosexual or the, the, the homosexual that was in, uh, ambivalent and so forth. So you have movies like um, Dirk Bogart and The Victim, where it's kind of clear that he's being blackmailed, or where the questions raised in movies like Teen Sympathy, uh, The Children's Hour. Um, in, you know, there, there's any number of these films, and of course you go back to the 20s and you've got you know Billy Haynes um, playing the big old queer character. These these sensual relationships that Nazimova would have with women on the screen. So you've got this invitation. Um, to homosexuality, to homosexual desire on the screen um, that um, is there for you know people in the know. Um, but what happens with boys, I think, is that I think that the gay liberation movement is is becoming a bit louder. People are hearing about it. That you know it's it's a it's a real big deal that that film happens when it happens. <laughs> Seeds of the Boys in the Band began with a piece by critic Stanley Kaufman, which appeared in the New York Times on January 23, 1966. The principal complaint against homosexual dramatists is well known. Because three of the most successful American playwrights of the last 20 years are reputed homosexuals, and their plays often treat of women in marriage. Therefore, it is said that post-war American drama presents a badly distorted picture of American women, marriage, and society in general. The fact is that the homosexual dramatist is not to blame in this matter. If he writes of marriage or other relationships about which he knows or cares little, it is because he has no choice but to masquerade. In society, the homosexual's life must be discreetly concealed. As material for drama, that life must be even more intensely concealed. 
If he is to write of his experience, he must invent a two-sex version of the one-sex experience that he really knows. Associate Professor of English at Bridgewater State University and the editor of The Boys in the Band, Flashpoints of Cinema, History, and Queer Politics, Matt Bell. You know, clearly for Kaufman, uh, a New York critic, you know, he was aware of the sort of ambient homosexuality around him. Um, so there was this kind of critical conversation taking place, but also a sense of like a, a vacuum of representation. That Kaufman piece served as the fuel for Mark Crowley's play, The Boys in the Band. Crowley was an openly gay writer who worked in television before becoming an assistant to Natalie Wood. With Wood's encouragement, he crafted a play that was free to be about what it was really about. The setting is a New York City apartment during a birthday party, and it's populated by nine distinct characters who each represent their own stage of denial, acceptance, and insecurity over their sexual identity. Over the course of the evening, the protective walls crumble, and an element of raw confession begins to creep in. First, there's the host of the party, a 30-year-old Roman Catholic named Michael. Faggots are worse than women about their age. They think their lives are over at 30. Then there's Michael's boyfriend, Donald, a man who strives for a sense of normalcy and engages in frequent psychoanalysis. Works late Saturdays and takes Mondays off. What is he, a psychiatrist or a hairdresser? Well, actually, he's both. He shrinks my head and then calms me out. There's Bernard, the only black man in the group, whose first love was a white boy whose family employed his mother as a maid. Please, spare us the sight of your sagging tits. Emery is the most flamboyant of the bunch, an interior decorator who swings from camp to pathos during the course of the play. Oh my god, he's after me again! <laughs> Hank is a schoolteacher who has left his straight family life. For a long time, I either labeled it something else or denied it completely. Larry is Hank's boyfriend. He cares for Hank, but cannot maintain a monogamous relationship. If I'm not thought of as a happy homewrecker, I'm an impossible son of a bitch to live with. Harold is the birthday boy, an acerbic character who feels that his advancing age is putting a damper on his ability to fulfill his desires. What I am, Michael, is a 32-year-old, ugly, pockmarked Jew fairy. Cowboy is a young, dim gigolo, and Harold's present for the evening. A happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday, dear Harold, happy birthday to you. Finally, there's Alan, a math teacher from out of state who claims to enjoy a soothing straight life with his wife and children. But he clearly has a secret he's desperate to get off his chest. I, uh, I really feel terrible about barging in on you fellas this way. The play opened in 1968 and quickly became an off-Broadway sensation, running for two years and a thousand performances. When it came time to put together the film version, Crowley and executive producer Dominic Dunn retained their stellar stage cast and looked to director William Friedkin, the young up-and-coming filmmaker who had previously worked to adapt Harold Pinter's play, The Birthday Party, to the screen. In one location, so he reproduces the feeling of the Broadway stage. It very much feels like a set. Associate Professor of English at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, 
Ramsey Fawaz. The, like the upstairs and the downstairs and the patio, right, are the only three places that we're in. And it often feels quite claustrophobic. Like when they're filming in the room downstairs, um, it feels very cramped. And when you go upstairs, it's incredibly intimate. Um, and and it, you can tell when you look at the stairs, it looks like it's like a, almost like barely a three-dimensional stage, like on, uh, uh, on a set, right? What I think is really smart about this reproduction of the Broadway feel is that it allows him to use the camera to reproduce the feeling of being in this deeply intimate setting among gay men in a social scene like this one. So one of the things he does is he uses a lot of shot reverse shots mm. when they're having their argument in the second half of the movie. He also like so. What's happening is that you feel like you're in the circle. So he reproduces the feeling of what it is like to be in that kind of so-called consciousness-raising circle, because people will be arguing, and he will put you in the position of Michael, and then you'll be in the position of Emery, and then you'll be in the position of Michael again. And so you you feel as though you are among the men. Another um, example of this, where he doesn't use shot reverse shots. He will do something really extraordinary, which is that two of the people will be arguing about something. And what will happen is you'll see, let's say, Michael yelling at Alan. But Alan and Michael will be in the same shot in an unusual way. So the camera will be looking at Michael and there's a mirror behind him. And the mirror will have Alan's face in it. Mm. So you feel like you are an extra, like, tenth member of the group watching Michael, and you can see Alan in the reflection. So you're viewing all of the statements being made, but also the people who are being held to account. The statements that were being made proved controversial and divisive, particularly among the population the film sought out to authentically represent. You know, you're, you're seeing gay characters, but, um, but they're, not, they're not sanctified, which I think caused some some disturbance when the play and the movie came out because you see them kind of foibles in some cases self-loathing and and all Mm. well i i think that that's been the you know the 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 crux around um boys in the band is a text because it is such a touchstone but it's also touchstone because it, it it's allowed for so many different um uh revisions in terms of how it's looked at right it, it literally transforms um uh its its interpretations as the historical period moves on you know you when it comes out you know you've got the the gay activists who are like you know no more self-loathing you know um enough of these um characters that you know are suicidal this that the other thing you know you can start to look at them these characters and you think, you know, they're not really self-loathing. They're, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a way of speaking. It's a way of, you know, existing in a in a, in a world that was so homophobic, that was so um, what just uh, cruel um, to, to to gay men that you you enter this space, you know, you brought into this space that's theirs. And yeah, they may be sad, and they're going to be, you know. Um, kind of nasty queens and, and so forth. But, you know, gay men kind of still are some ways, you know? It's, it's kind of a fun thing. It's, um, uh, it, it's, it's very complicated what we see 
in the boys in the band, you know? Um, and that's what we're discovering now. I think that that's what is happening um, yet, still to this day. You know, people from my generation, you know, in their 50s, still see it as a self-loathing, mm. uh, negative portrayal um, of, of gay characters. You know, I think it's more complicated. If you are an oppressed minority in this country, you, do, you there is no possible way that you can develop and emerge as a human without some level of self-loathing. You are trained by this culture to despise yourself and people like you. Mm. And it takes an extraordinary amount of political and social consciousness to shed that self-loathing. I mean, this is what, you know, these famous slogans like black is beautiful and gay is good that came out of these social movements um, were trying to do. They were trying to create a consciousness of elevating blackness to the space of the beautiful, of elevating gayness to the space of the good. And I think um, the boys in the band, it was honest in its portrayal of the fact that it's not like gay men were going to overnight wake up and stop hating themselves. The movie is so honest in many ways about the fact that gay men who are out and living a truly kind of um, exploratory and inventive, erotic and social life also have moments of deep, deep self-hatred. Um, confusion, sadness, depression. I think the movie was so honest about the negative emotions that come with being treated like garbage. And I think it has a reputation for showing self-loathing or shame, but it also includes other things. I, mean, I think that it's such a um, it's such a complex representation that includes you know profound kinds of affection and defiance and pride uh, and joy. Um, the, the, you know, the, the sort of emotional high point of the film is that um, the kick line, uh, the, the, the line dance that they do to the Martha and the Vandella song called Heat Wave. Um, so much that follows in the film after that kind of mid that point midway through the film so much that follows is negative and awful and self-loathing and painful to watch um but there's also the possibility of something much more exuberant in that moment um and i and i think you know some people walk away from the film certainly in, in 1970 just feeling like it's just kind of like you know bathed in self-loathing and you know i, I would want to point out the things about it that are more complex than that do you find that because the the piece is, follows uh, eight or nine uh, characters? I mean, it's a it's a, yeah. a wealth of characters. Do you find that each of them kind of epitomize a different aspect of the the gay experience of that time? So I think one of the crit criticisms that's been lobbied at the movie is that all of the characters represent uh, stereotypes, right? But the, the problem with that critique is. Every gay man watches the movie and recognizes somebody in it. Even if they don't fit the type exactly, we know those people. Like, there's a way in which you look at it and you see parts of yourself and you see parts of other people. And so the film, in a sense, is also honest about how the collision of an emergent gay male culture with the dominant norms of American heterosexual culture produces these weird types of people who fit into these different niches. So the figure of Emery is really, really interesting in this, in this regard. Mm, they love to meet him. Uh, her. 
I have a special problem with pronouns. How many S's are there in the word pronoun? How'd you like to kiss my ass? That's got two or more S's in it. How'd you like to blow me? Somehow, your wife got locked jaw. On the one hand, it's very easy to perceive him as this horrible stereotype of the highly effeminate gay man. But I recognize that character. Like, I have often felt like that character. I've also known lots of people who feel like that character. And so part of it is this weird combination of a character who is um, handsome but does not fit uh, the, the, the beauty heart. He's, like, not in the beauty hierarchy, right? He has a high voice. He's not muscular. He's not, like, traditionally masculine. And so one of the ways in which he responds to that is by building an extraordinarily bombastic, big, kind of brazen uh, form of effeminacy that is a kind of fabulous, right? It's like a fabulous refusal of that order. And surprisingly, among all the men, he actually has more sex than almost all of them. And he, and, and the other men in the group have such complicated um, relationships to him. They love him dearly, like a sister, and they also envy the fact that he is so out. I went shopping today and bought all kinds of goodies. Sandalwood soap. Oh, I feel better already. Your very own toothbrush, because I'm sick to death of you using mine. Well, how do you think I feel? You've had worse things in your mouth. The major character, Michael, in whose, in whose apartment the whole um, play and film is set, um, you know, it was really based on Crowley himself. Crowley had struggled with alcohol um, and had had the kinds of experiences that are described in the film, um, you know, just uh, experiences of self-loathing and kind of wishing things were otherwise and, and sort of being mean-spirited toward his friends. My God! <laughs> Michael! Michael! Don't leave Please don't leave me. It, it, like, it's clear that they're thinking of, uh, that, that Crowley is thinking about a range of uh, types of person from the most closeted to the most out, from the most masculine to the most feminine. Um, you know, there are different religious and racial types represented in the film. I think that, that there's something so powerful about the fact that the film presents these social types. And then it shifts them to this really interesting interaction with one another. So they never solidify into stereotypes because they're rounded, rich, complicated people who are talking. In the ever-evolving landscape of queer politics and representation, one could argue the merits of the boys in the band ad nauseum. That's one of the film's strengths and what has made it endure over the past five decades. When the film opened on February 17, 1970, nine months after the galvanizing Stonewall riots that shook New York City and the gay liberation movement, it was met with generally favorable reviews. But its impact did not immediately absorb into the film culture of the time, at least in terms of inspiring other works of similar explicitness in its immediate wake. But without a doubt, the boys in the band started a conversation that continues to this day. We still experience horrific oppression. There is still incredible negativity towards us, and we feel negativity about ourselves and about the world. We should be able to articulate depression, frustration, anxiety, anger, rage, just as much as like joy, pleasure, love, ebullion. And I think the film is willing to tackle all of those feelings, and we have so much to learn from that. 
Oh, Michael, thanks for the laughs. Call you tomorrow. <laughs>